athletes are often told to always be ready and to expect the unexpected. But every now and then, when a coach says that to an athlete, he probably doesn't really mean it. Like, think about the backup quarterback for the New York Jets, Zach Wilson. Spent the entire season in the shadow of a superstar quarterback, Aaron Rodgers. This entire team was built for Aaron Rodgers to lead the New York Jets to great glory. Perhaps the coach told him, make sure you're ready, Zach. But Zach knew if he plays at all, it's going to be in the fourth quarter in the middle of a blowout, maybe later down the season when the playoffs are already clinched. Little did Zach Wilson know that after Aaron Rodgers made his fourth snap in the first game of his season, he tore his Achilles tendon and is out for the rest of the season. Ready or not, here Zach Wilson comes. Many of us, I think, probably, if we're honest, think about the return of Christ kind of like it's, you're an unknown backup playing behind a superstar quarterback. I don't really need to be ready for this, do I? I mean, really? Is it really that important? Is it really that big of a deal? I mean, isn't this kind of like a, a fourth quarter sort of situation? Don't I have a long time? Won't it be really obvious when it's time for me to be ready for the return of Christ? The main thrust of our passage this morning is that Jesus wants his people to always be ready for the return of Christ. In our passage this morning, Jesus pleads with his people to always be ready, and then in his great mercy, he shows us how to be ready. If you're not already in your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn there to Matthew 24, verse, beginning in verse 36. Whether it's an app or one of the Bibles in the seats beneath you, it's going to help you a lot if you have a copy of God's Word that you can follow along as we study together. Especially because I'm not going to uh, reference specifically every single verse. We've got a long chunk of Scripture to look at today, so it's really going to help you if you can follow along with your Bible. So just to remember the context of where we are, it is Tuesday night, just a few days before Jesus' crucifixion. He entered the city in glory on Sunday, had tons of debates with the Pharisees. He, he drops seven woes on them in Matthew 23. He says to them, your house has been left to you desolate. And then in chapter 24, he tells the disciples what he means by that. This temple that you think is so glorious and beautiful, it's going to be destroyed. And you remember, we've been in this passage for a couple of weeks now. You remember that the disciples asked Jesus two crucial questions. Recorded for us in verse 3, question number one is, when are these things going to happen? When's the temple going to be destroyed? And question number two, what's going to be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And remember, we've said that Jesus answers both of those questions, but it's a bit like receiving a box filled with a bunch of tangled up Christmas lights. In this text, you've got two strands of prophecy, one about the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, and one about the return of, the Christ, of Christ at the end of the world, and they're kind of tangled up, and it's not always easy to tell wh what Jesus is talking about when. 
But I've got great news for you this morning. We are done with the tangled up part. You made it. Congratulations. Now, from here on out in the Olivet Discourse, that's Matthew 24, 25, from here on out, Jesus is exclusively talking about his return at the end of the world. And in our text this morning, Jesus wants to communicate to us to be ready for his return and how to be ready for his return. That's the big idea I want you to understand from this passage of God's word today. Jesus tells us to be ready for his return, and he shows us how to be ready for his return. So with God's help, we're going to ask and answer two really simple questions. We'll spend a little bit of time on the first question and the rest of our time on the second. Question number one is, why must we be ready for Jesus' return? And question number two is, how can we be ready for Jesus' return? Question number one, why must we be ready for Jesus' return? That's the question that Jesus answers in verses 36 through 44. Look with me first at verse 36. Jesus says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. The day and the hour that Jesus is talking about in this verse is the moment of his return. He says that the angels don't know, disciples, you guys don't know, Christians in America in the 21st century, you guys don't know when that moment's going to be. And he says, not even the sun. What does that mean? We need to remember that the Bible teaches Jesus is one person with two natures. Every single one of you are one person with one nature. You're a human with a human nature. Jesus is one person with a divine nature and a human nature, wrapped up in one being. So how does that make sense? It, well, it's hard to understand. Uh, theologians have sometimes called it the hypostatic union, the fact that these two natures, human and divine, can be wrapped up in one person. So in his divine nature, as the eternal Son of God, Jesus knows all things. He, he knows when he's going to return. But in his humanity, Jesus forfeited the free exercise of his divine attributes. And in his humanity, Jesus is truly human. Jesus gets tired. Jesus bleeds. Jesus dies. Jesus in his humanity does not know everything, there are things that the Father withholds from Him, including the day and the hour and the moment of His return. Now, if in His humanity, Jesus doesn't even know the day of His return, do you know what that means? You and I certainly don't know. We don't know. No matter how many charts you've got on your wall or in the back of your Bible, Who puts eschatology charts on their wall, by the way? I don't know why I said that, but maybe you do. That's great. Good for you. No matter how many charts you have, no no matter how many books you've read, no matter how much you've studied, no matter how many conferences you've been to or blogs you listen to about the end of the world, guess what? You don't know. You don't know. 
the day or the hour, the moment of Jesus' return, no one knows. To illustrate his point, Jesus compares his return to the days of Noah in verses 37 to 41. Jesus says, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Now some people use these verses to teach that there is coming a day when some people will be secretly raptured. So uh, you'll be upstairs, you sleep in late, and you come downstairs, and there's the chair that grandpa normally sits in and reads his Bible, and there's just a pile of clothes there. He's been raptured, and I've been left behind. That's the idea. And some people look to this passage to support that. But if you look closely, I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching at all. He compares the days of his return with the days of Noah. Think about the days of Noah. When the flood came, Noah, Noah wasn't caught off guard, but everybody else was. They were marrying, they were eating, they were drinking, they were partying, they were working in the fields. Life was normal, and all of a sudden, the flood came. But then Noah and his family were lifted above the earth on an ark. The unbelievers were taken away by water, and the world was washed clean. Then Noah and his family were left on a renewed planet. Jesus says, that's how it's going to be when I return. When I return, everybody's going to get caught off guard. People are going to be getting married. They're going to be eating and drinking and working in the fields and enjoying life. Life's going to look normal. One argument for, uh, one argument against the idea that right before the end, it's going to be absolutely chaotic and cataclysmic and everything's upside down. Jesus says they're going to be marrying. People are going to be having parties. People are going to be working in the field in the moment when I return. And then what, what happens? Just like Noah was lifted into the air while the earth was purified by water, God's people will be lifted in the air. The earth will be purified by fire. The unbelievers will be taken away, and we will be left on a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. Which means, if you're paying attention... You actually want to be left behind. But that's another story for another day. Jesus' main point in comparing his return to the days of Noah is not to teach a secret rapture, but to illustrate that nobody knows when he's going to return. Here's what that means practically for us Christian. Instead of obsessing over all the details about the return of Christ, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, you need to be focused on being ready. You need to be focused on being ready to see him. Jesus repeats that lesson in verses 42 to 44. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour. Listen, you do not expect. 
One of the things I've tried to show you as we walk through the Olivet Discourse together is that a lot of the things that we look to as signs of the end aren't really signs of the end at all. They're signs of the entire age of the church. Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, false teaching, all of these things we ought to expect in every age. Do you know how you know that Jesus is coming back? You know how you know it's time for Jesus to come back? When you see Him in the skies. That's the sign. What does that mean? It means you need to be ready all the time. You need to be ready. But how? Jesus in His kindness tells us that. That's the second question we're going to answer this morning with God's help. How? How can we be ready for Jesus' return? Years ago, um, I was probably seven or eight years old, my mom asked me to boil a dozen eggs to make egg salad for my family. I'm one of a bunch of siblings. I even forget how many siblings I have. There's so many of us. And so she says, go into the kitchen, boil a dozen eggs, so that way I can make egg salad for the family for lunch. I said, great. I go into the kitchen, and I start cracking eggs and putting them in a pot of water, one after another. You're laughing because you know what I didn't, and that is that that's not how you boil eggs. It's one thing to tell someone to do something, and it's another thing to tell them how to do it. Jesus, in His grace and kindness, does not only say, be ready, He says, how to be ready. Perhaps you're wondering, how, how do I be ready? I mean, do I need to have a bag packed? Do I need to sell the house and make sure I'm not tied down to anything here? Do I need to make sure I don't get married or, or, or have kids? How do I be ready? Jesus tells us. He does it in the form of three simple stories called parables. Each story is about people who are waiting for someone important to return. In each story, there are some people that are ready, and there are some people that aren't. In each story, those who are ready are rewarded, and those who are not ready are punished. And each story, Jesus teaches us the main lesson that you and I need to know to be ready for the return of Christ. Here's what it is. It's really simple. You need to have true faith. That's how you be ready. And Jesus, in each of these stories, shows us a different characteristic of what it means to have true faith. So, number one, or letter A, we need a faith that trusts. We need a faith that trusts. True faith is not mere belief, but trust. First parable is in verses 45 to 51. I'm not going to read it again. It's a pretty straightforward parable. A master goes away on a journey. While he's away, he sets two servants over his household. The faithful servant does what the master expects. But the wicked servant does not trust that his master will return anytime soon. So he mistreats his co-workers. He gets drunk. When the master returns, he blesses the faithful servant and cuts the wicked servant to pieces. So what's the parable mean? 
The master in the parable represents Jesus. The time that the master is away represents the age of the church. The entire time between the the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus. The servant's job is to, uh, it represents the life of obedience that Jesus demands. The faithful servant represents all Christians. These are people with true faith. And the wicked servant in the first parable represents all unbelievers. The faithful servant's reward represents heaven. And the wicked servant being cut to pieces represents the punishment of hell. Now here's what I want you to notice. What is it that separates these two servants? If you look at the parable on its surface, it appears that the difference is one obeyed and one didn't. That's true. One obeyed and one didn't. But I think we need to look deeper than the outward obedience and ask, why did one obey and the other didn't? If you notice, look at verse 48 with me in your Bibles. If that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. Here's the difference between the two servants. One of them trusts the word of the master. He obeys because he trusts that the master will return. The wicked servant does not trust the master. In fact, he trusts his own instincts, his own reading of the situation. He trusts his own heart, his own feelings more than he trusts the word of the master. That's why he doesn't obey, because he doesn't believe. See, trust is more than intellectually saying, I believe something is true. Trust is is putting your weight on something. There are many of you in this room, I would say perhaps even most, if not all of you in this room this morning, that would say, I believe in Jesus. But I want to ask you, do you trust Him? Mere belief in Jesus is enough to put you on the same level as demons. James chapter 2 says the demons believe that God is one and they tremble, but the demons do not trust. So how do you know if you trust? Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but a great example of trust comes from the life of Charles Blondin. He was a 19th century acrobat bat who mesmerized crowds by walking a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Uh, one particular day in July of 1859, he crossed on a tightrope across Niagara Falls in a sack, on stilts, on a bicycle, and on one occasion, he carried a stove and cooked an omelet. Brothers and sisters and friends, I can't cook an omelet on flat ground. This joker's walking across a tightrope across Niagara Falls cooking an omelet. It's pretty impressive. July 15th, 1859, the story is told that Charles Blondin walked across the tightrope backwards to Canada, got a wheelbarrow, and came back across to the United States side. 
There's a massive crowd there. Everybody's ooing and aahing. This is incredible. Yay, Charles Blondin, you're amazing. And he says, how many of you think that I can push a person across the tightrope in this wheelbarrow? And everyone's like, we believe, Charles, you can do it. And he says, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? Crickets, right? Oh, sorry, I got an appointment. <laughs> you see the difference between belief and trust? Belief says, sure, Jesus, yes, you're great. I believe, yes. But trust is to get in the wheelbarrow, to give Jesus control over your life, to let him tell you how to do relationships, how to do money, how to do work and marriage and sex and hobbies, and possessions, and entertainment, and identity, and all of it, to say, Jesus, I belong to you. Wherever you lead me, I'll go. That's trust. So let me ask you again, dear brother, sister, friend, are you trusting Jesus? Again, I'm not asking if you claim to believe in Him. I'm not asking if you profess to be a Christian. I'm asking if you are trusting Him with your life. Now hear this warning, dear friend, young person, old person, man, woman, boy, or girl. If you will not trust Jesus, he will cut you to pieces when he returns. We sing these songs, like joy to the world, by the glory and the greatness and the goodness of the return of Christ. That is true. But if you will not trust him, that day will be a day of great sorrow for you. I don't say that to scare you. I say that because it's right here in the Bible. Perhaps there are some of you in this room that are really, you're really struggling with this idea of hell. Really, people deserve hell? Is anyone really that bad? I believe that when we disbelieve the doctrine of hell, the problem is not that we value humans too much. The problem is that we value God too little. Think about it like this. If you took a key and found a car in a junkyard and just scratched it, no one would really care. It's not really valuable. It's a car in a junkyard. If you took your key, please don't do this, Although, you know, it's not a big deal, whatever. Let's say you took your key and you went up to my gold Honda Odyssey, parked right out there. You can find it easily after the service, and you just went, you know, it's just going to join the other scratches. It's going to add a little bit more character to the vehicle. If you find a nicer vehicle in the parking lot, we know the police chief, and he just might have a conversation with you after the service. Why? Because a little bit nicer of a vehicle, all of a sudden, there's an issue. Why? Because of the value of what's being defaced. What if you were to visit a car show and see an Austin Martin Valor, one of the most expensive cars in the world, at $1.5 million? You scratch that vehicle, and the price tag will be much higher. Same action from the junkyard to the car show, different consequences. Why? Because of the value of what you're scratching. Hell reflects 
the value of the glory of God. He is eternally holy. His value is beyond comprehension. Hell exists because God is so holy. But there is good news, my friend. The Father sent His Son to live a sinless life and die a sinner's death so that you could escape the horrors of hell. Jesus endured the pain of hell on the cross so that you could be saved. If you will, but turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. If you're feeling moved by this gospel message that I'm trying to share with you right now, and you'd like to talk to someone a little bit more after the service about what it means to trust Jesus. I'm going to ask all the pastors, would you raise your hand for just a second? Pastors, hold your hand up. Just keep them up for just a second. If you're feeling like you want to talk to someone about that, you can go to any of us after the service. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. But listen to me, hear me again. What Jesus requires, true faith, is not mere belief, but trust. If you want to be ready for the return of Christ, trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. Second thing that we need, not only a faith that trusts, we need a faith that perseveres. We need a faith that perseveres. Jesus' second parable is found in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 25. Again, I'm just going to summarize the parable for you. There are ten virgins waiting for a groom to come so that a wedding feast can begin. But since they don't know when he's coming, they, they're carrying lamps while they wait in case it gets dark. Five ladies have oil in their lamps. Five foolish ladies don't. And by the way, for those of us who aren't used to uh, using lamps, be kind of like having a flashlight without batteries. And by the way, for those of us who aren't used to using flashlights, be kind of like your smartphone without any battery and no cable. Okay? We got it now? Outside, it's going to be dark. These ladies, five of them are prepared for the darkness. Five of them aren't. At midnight, the groom arrives. The five foolish virgins cannot see to make their way to him. They, they try to borrow oil from the five wise ladies, but there's not enough to share. And so they, they go to try to find some oil for their lamps so that they can make it to the wedding feast. But by the time they get their oil and get to the wedding feast, the door is shut, never to be opened again. It's too late. They've missed it. So what's this parable mean? The, the coming bridegroom, of course, represents Jesus who is coming. The ten virgins represent, listen to this, everyone who claims to be a Christian. Everybody in this parable, all the ten ladies, claim to be Christians. Five of them, the five wise virgins, represent true Christians who persevere until the end. And the five foolish virgins represent Christians in name only who will not be welcomed into heaven because their faith is not genuine. Midnight represents the time when Jesus will return. And the oil represents 
true faith that perseveres. Well, what lessons can we learn from this parable? The most obvious lesson that we need to learn is that waiting for Jesus will be long and hard. Waiting for Jesus will be long and hard. Look at verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Isn't that interesting? Both the wise women and the foolish women slept. Everybody fell asleep. Both true Christians and Christians in name only will fall asleep. Spiritual slumber, we've talked about it in a couple of our prayers already today. It's not something that some Christians struggle with. It's something that all Christians struggle with. Dear brother, sister, you will not wait perfectly for the return of Jesus. You will find yourself sometimes going days, weeks, months without even thinking about it. One of the things that God has done in my own heart over the past few weeks studying the Olivet Discourse has been to renew my passion for the return of Jesus. But why did it need to be renewed in the first place? Because it had waned. Isn't that true of you, Christian? Don't you sometimes find yourself spiritually apathetic and lethargic and slumbering? But that is not what determines if you will be welcomed into the wedding feast. It, it is not about waiting perfectly. The question is, do you have faith that perseveres? Will the oil of faith in your lamp run out before He returns? Will your faith last? Perhaps some of you are wondering, am I persevering? I want to persevere, but how do I know if I'm persevering? What if I already gave up? If you were to come to me privately after the service and ask for counsel for something like that, here's probably what I would tell you. Stop following Jesus. Now, I think most of you would say, I can't. I love him too much. And I would say, exactly. Isn't that the evidence that your faith is persevering because you will not stop, because you can't stop, because your heart is drawn to him, because you want to follow him? That's what persevering faith looks like. It doesn't mean you're always awake. It doesn't mean you're always looking and always ready and always behaving as you should and watching and praying. It means that even when you don't, God wakes you up and you keep following. That's what the five wise virgins do in this text. It is significant that both the wise and the foolish virgins have lamps. It's not like the foolish women were completely un unprepared. They just weren't in it for the long haul, were they? Like somebody who calls themselves a Christian for a while, but then it begins to get hard. People begin to make fun of them, or God's Word is challenging you in ways that you're just not sure you want to obey, and you begin to slowly fizzle out and walk away. That's what the foolish virgins did. This is not a new problem, by the way. The Apostle John tells us this was a problem in the early church. 
1 John 2 verse 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. The person who doesn't persevere in their faith, that doesn't keep believing, is a person who gives evidence that they never had genuine faith to begin with. What do you need to be ready for the return of Christ? You need true faith. What does true faith look like? It looks like trusting faith. It looks like persevering faith. So just like Journey would tell us, don't stop believing. Persevere. Continue. Trust. Follow. Don't give up. I think there's one more quick lesson that we ought to learn from this parable. And this is a warning to those of you, perhaps, that are riding on someone else's spiritual coattails. You cannot borrow someone else's faith. Isn't it interesting, when the bridegroom returns, the foolish, foolish virgins go to the wise virgins and they say, please give us some of your oil, and they say, no. Now, Jesus is not trying to make a point about not sharing. He's trying to make a point about faith. You can't borrow someone else's faith. Young people, listen to me. You can't ride on mom and dad's faith. You have to have your own faith. This is one reason why we work so hard in PBC Kids and our student ministry to pour into young people so that you know what you believe and why. You cannot on judgment day look to mom's faith or dad's faith and say, Jesus, receive me because they believed. To the men in here with far more spiritual wives, you cannot borrow extra faith from your wife. You, you, man of God, must lead with your own faith. You must dive deep into the pages of God's Word so that you can lead in faith because you cannot borrow the faith of another. If you will not come to Jesus with your own trusting faith, then the door of heaven will be slammed shut in your face when Jesus returns. I don't want that to be you, friend. Third thing that we must have, third characteristic of true faith, we need a faith that works. We need a faith that works. Jesus' final parable is found in verses 14 to 30. A master leaves his three servants in charge of property. He gives each of the servants talents. Uh, that's a, actually a, a measure of currency in that day. It was about 20 years wages, so it's a lot of money. The first servant gets five talents, the second gets two, the third gets one. While the master is away, the first two servants double the master's investment, but the third servant buries his money in the ground. When the master returns to settle accounts with the three servants, he rewards the first two, and he calls the third servant a wicked and slothful servant. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And he casts him into outer darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what does this third parable mean? The master, of course, represents again Jesus. His fact that he's away on a journey represents the time that Jesus is physically absent from his people. 
The three servants, again, represent everyone who claims to be a Christian. The talents represent the different levels of gifts and resources that Jesus gives. The faithful servants are genuine Christians whose faith works. And the third servant is a wicked servant who has a measure of faith. He believes some things about his master, but his faith doesn't work. And of course, the reward that the first two servants receive represents heaven, and the place of outer darkness, of weeping and gnashing of teeth represents hell. So let's ask again, what lessons should we learn from this parable? First, to the Christian, let me remind you that Jesus does not expect you to accomplish the same thing as everyone else. One servant has five talents, and he makes five more. Another servant has two talents, and he makes two more. You see the difference? They don't have the same gifts, and they don't have the same output. Some people have taught this passage of Scripture where, where Jesus says that, that popular phrase, well done, good and faithful servant, and they say that's the phrase that Jesus says to the real Christians, the super Christians, the ones who work really hard. But notice Jesus says that phrase to both servants whose faith works. He does not say to the second guy, nice try, okay, and mediocre servant, enter into the disappointment of your master. He doesn't say that. They receive the same reward. So faithful follower of Jesus, you may not have as many gifts as your brother or sister. Maybe you can't sing. Maybe you can't speak publicly. Maybe you're not creative. Maybe you're not especially good with people. Maybe you're not a natural leader. But if you belong to Jesus, you have received gifts that Jesus expects you to use to bless His people. Jesus does not demand that you generate the same output as everybody else, but that you give the same input that you actually use what God has given you, little or big, whatever it is, you use what He's given to serve Him. Your faith actually works. The parable also has a sober warning, doesn't it? To the person who, who does not have true faith. Notice what the third servant did wrong. He didn't lose the money. He didn't steal it. He's not working for his master's enemies. Yet the master calls him slothful and wicked and casts him into outer darkness. Why? Because if you claim to be a servant of Jesus, but you're not moved to use what you're given to work and grow, then you don't know Jesus. Hear me, friend. If you claim to serve Jesus, but you will not use your resources to serve Him. You are fooling yourself. Some have wondered if this passage is teaching work salvation. The answer to that question is obviously, emphatically, no. Jesus is not saying 
He will take your salvation away if you don't work hard enough. He is saying, if your faith doesn't lead you to good works, it's not real faith. We're going to talk about what some of those good works ought to be next week when we finish up Matthew 25. But just listen to James 2.14 and what the Apostle James says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? The answer to James' rhetorical question is no. Faith without works cannot save anybody, and it's not any good. This is one reason, Christian, why church membership is so important. Think of church membership as the laboratory or the greenhouse where you do those good works. Are you doing them? Follower of Jesus, is your faith working? If you have true faith, your faith will be a working, growing faith. That's what it requires to be ready for the return of Jesus. A faith that trusts, a faith that perseveres, and a faith that works. Now, it would be foolish for us to listen to all of that and not take some time to actually examine ourselves to see if we have that kind of faith. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? But how do we examine ourselves? Let me suggest a few simple principles to help us apply this and examine our lives to see if we have true faith. Principle number one, don't examine short periods of your life. If you look at this morning and the difficult time that you had getting all the little kids rounded up and here to church on time, you, and examine only that, you will probably think, I'm not saved! Or, if you've had a particularly difficult week, I've had a particularly hard week, you've had a week like that, and you just look at that week, you see all the flaws and all the fallenness and all the anger and bitterness and doubt and disobedience, and you look at just that little segment of time, you're going to conclude, I don't have real faith, my faith isn't working. Don't examine short periods of your life. Instead, examine yourself over months and years. Is there evidence that your trust has grown deeper this year, Christian? Has your faith persevered through trials over the last five years? Think through the trials you've endured. Has your faith persevered? You still got it. There's still oil in your lamp. Is there fruit of good works and spiritual growth in your life over the past decade? Examine yourself over larger periods, not small ones. Number two, second principle for examining yourself, don't examine yourself alone. If you look at 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it's clear that this is a command that God's people are supposed to do together. Uh, let me show you one reason why this is important. Raise your hand if you are your worst critic. Hold your hand up, you're your worst critic. You're not paying attention, here's the question, are you your worst critic? 
Hold your hand up if it's you. A lot of us, okay? So then what's the danger in examining yourself alone? You see all your stuff, all your sin, all of it. And what do you do? You condemn, and the accuser piles on, and you wonder, do I even know him? And you spend your Christian life without assurance. Why? Because you're trying to do something alone that you can't do alone. You need brothers and sisters to come alongside you and help you examine yourself. So consider asking a brother, a sister, where do you see my faith needing work? Where do you see me struggling to persevere? Where do you see me struggling to trust? What good works do you see that I need to grow in? A third principle to help us examine ourselves is to don't examine ourselves foolishly. Here's what I mean. Don't ask dumb self-examination questions. People sometimes say that there are no dumb questions. Those people are wrong. There are some dumb questions. Here's some really dumb self-examination questions. Am I reading the Bible as much as I should? Am I praying as often as I should? Do I love my neighbor enough? Am I evangelizing enough? Am I discipling enough? Am I doing enough good works? Am I trusting as much as I should? Am I involved in my church as much as I should be? You know the problem with all those questions? The answer to all of them is no. Don't ask self-examination questions that even the Apostle Paul would say, nope, not doing that one. So here's some better self-examination questions. How does my Bible reading need to improve? Where's my prayer life weak? Who's a neighbor I'm struggling to love? What's one way I can grow in my evangelism? Who in my church family needs to be discipled, and what could I do to help? What good works are lacking in my life? Where is my trust weak? What is one area where I need to grow in my church involvement? And number four, as we examine ourselves, after you look in the mirror, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The most important way that Jesus shows us how to be ready for his return is through his own example. Jesus is the only one who trusted the Father perfectly. In just a few days, he's going to cry out his heart to his Father, and then he's going to say, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is the only one who perseveres and stays awake when everyone around him falls asleep. And Jesus is the only one whose faith works perfectly so well that all of us are redeemed by the work of Jesus. So yes, look in the mirror, Christian, examine yourself, but then look to Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for Jesus. We pray that as 